All right, team, let's start making our way back if we can. All right, would you guys pray with me one more time? Father God, thank you that you are faithful to to hear our prayers. God, we just confess this morning that uh, apart from you, we can do nothing. Uh, The sermon will do nothing without your power. Unless your spirit breathes upon it, And you are at work in our hearts. So we just confess as your children this morning, God, we need your help. Please help us to uh, hear and be changed by your word. We thank you for it and we pray for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Man, I hope you guys have been encouraged as we've been looking at the story of Abram the past few weeks. Um, I know that I have been, because really Abram's story is our story. I just love seeing God as the the master story writer, uh, weaving together a singular gospel story uh, starting from the very beginning. How God interacts with Abram and his descendants has everything to do with us today. It's through his covenant with Abram that God made a way of redemption through Jesus that has led to this church's existence in his name. Through Jesus, we have been written into Abram's story as fellow children of the promise. Abram's story is our story as well, because we see ourselves in these stories too, don't we? We have the same struggles, the same lack of faith, the same sinful tendencies as Abram, as Sarai, as Hagar. But however much that sameness is true of us and them, it is infinitely more true of our God. Our God does not change. The same faithfulness, the same patience, the same sovereign calling, the same sureness of his word that we see in Genesis, he has for his people today. Our story left off last week with Abram and um, Sarai again failing in their faith, believing a lie that God's word wasn't true. They took matters into their own hands, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. But we also saw the patience and grace of God that he showed them and to Hagar. And the chapter ended with the birth of Ishmael. As God's word says, when Abram was 86 years old. Our text today starts off when Abram was 99 years old. The Lord appeared to Abram. Sounds intentional, doesn't it? From last week's chapter to ours today, 13 years have passed by without a word. God wants us to take notice In the story of Abram waiting on God to fulfill his promise, 13 more years pass by. That's 13 years where God has not appeared to Abram to speak to him. That's 13 more years, more than likely, with continued family strife between Abram 
Sarai and Hagar. Thirteen years passed by, and we would do well to wonder, why now? Why does God wait till now to speak to Abram again? His timing is not random. It's not belated. He is not idle. He wasn't hitting the snooze button or occupied with uh, more important matters. No, when Abram was 99 years old, in God's perfect sovereign timing, with infinite wisdom and love at his disposal, God said, now is the time. And the Lord appeared to Abram. There's divine wisdom in the waiting in this story. God appears now in order to draw something out of the heart of Abram, and he means to draw it out of our hearts too. So let's look together at verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. First, uh, students of his word, what does it say is God's purpose in appearing to Abram now? So that he can make a covenant between him and Abram, right? But you might be thinking, didn't he already do that? I mean, wasn't wasn't that what the whole weird thing in chapter 15 was about with the cutting in half of animals and, and all that? I mean, did God forget his promise or did the last one not work? Like, what's, what's going on here? One could think of it like this. Um, imagine a father watching his son joyfully drive a remote control car around the house. And he says to his son, you know, one day you're going to own one of those yourself and you're actually going to drive it yourself. And it's hard to believe for the son, but, but he believes his dad. Until he turns 18 and he still doesn't have near enough money for a car, and so he starts to get bitter. Until one day he walks out his front door and sees in the driveway a brand new car. And his dad goes to him and says, son, I'm, I'm here to make you a promise. As I promised all those years ago, here's the car I said that I would give you. But before I hand you the keys, you need to promise me that you're not going to drive distracted with your friends and you're not going to take this car racing and you're always going to remember who gave it to you. And it's, it's like that with God's covenant with Abraham. This is the same covenant. It's the same promise that he already made to him all those years ago, but this time... The covenant promise is made more clear because the next stage of God's promise is ready to be started. Abraham has reached the exact age that God has been waiting for. And so he expands the details of his covenant and, just like in our story, God now gives Abram his side of the covenant agreement. Because here's the thing about covenants. They're two-sided, aren't they? There was a covenant process known in these days um, as a, uh, known as a vassal treaty, where the king of a larger kingdom would go to a lesser kingdom in the area and say, look, it, instead of fighting against you, I'm, I'm actually going to fight for you. I'm going to defend you 
But what I need from you is for you to swear allegiance to me and follow such and such rules of our kingdom. Both parties make promises under oath, but if one party fails to meet the obligations, the covenant is then broken. God has previously pronounced God's side of the covenant, but he hasn't told Abram his side. And so God's going to give Abram three things that he needs to do to fulfill his side of the covenant, two of which are in this sentence. The Lord said to Abram, walk before me and be blameless. Now, if you've been a part of our journey through Genesis so far, um, those phrases might ring in your ears a bit right? The first covenant that God made with man after the fall was with Noah, right? In a world overrun with wickedness and running after other gods, it was said of Noah, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And what was Noah most known for? With the ark, he believed God's word, no matter how unbelievably impossible it sounded. It meant walking in relationship with God and his ways and trusting in God with all his heart. The difference here is that with Noah, it was stated as something already true. But with Abram, God gives it as a standard to meet that he hasn't yet. God gives it as Abram's end of the covenant agreement, and Abram knows he hasn't met that, which is why we see the reaction that we do next. Verse 3, then Abram fell on his face. Now, you can probably imagine what this looks like, but I'm actually going to help you out a little bit. So, to fall on one's face is something that we see in the Bible numerous times, right? See, this is the prone position. It's the most humbling, helpless position that one could be in. And we actually see God's people do this in the Bible in three different ways, for three different reasons. We see God's people put their face to the ground like that in worship in submission, and in desperate prayer. We see it in worship, like when Joshua met the commander of the army of the Lord, and he fell on his face to the earth and worshiped him. We see it in complete submission, like with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless not my will, but yours. And we see it in desperate prayer. Like the leper before Jesus who fell on his face and begged, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And in Abram, I think we're seeing all three. I think this is worship for Abram. See, it's not, it's not just the appearance of God that makes him fall on his face. God has appeared to him before, and he didn't do this. And he doesn't do it in our text 
today until God says what he says. It's something that God says that makes him fall on his face. Notice the way that God introduces himself. He says, I am the Lord Almighty. In Hebrew, that's El Shaddai. This, this is the truth about God that Abram needs to hear right now. This is the thing that he's doubted about God his whole walk. In Abram's eyes, God is too weak for the task at hand. It's why he lied about his wife to Pharaoh. It's why they've taken matters into their own hands with Ishmael. Abram needs to see just how sovereign and powerful the God that he serves is. And so God reminds him, I am the Lord Almighty, the Lord All-Powerful. We all have truths about God that we, we agree to theologically, but, but sometimes the fruit of our lives, our actions and our words, they show something different. And like Abram, we need to be reminded just who our God is. And like Abram, maybe this morning you need to hear that same thing. That God is almighty. That nothing can stay his hand. Nothing is impossible for him. Whatever he purposes, he accomplishes. And for some of us, maybe you're more prone to doubt and need reminding that God cares for you. He loves you. That he is working for your good. And still, maybe, maybe some of you this morning need to be reminded that God is merciful. That he loved you while you were yet a sinner. Christ died for you. We're forgetful. We're quick to unbelief as a people which is why we regularly need to be in his word and be reminding each other who our God is. But to Abram, God reminds Abram that he is the Lord Almighty. And Abram falls on his face in worship. But I think we see him do this in submission as well. God comes here to establish his covenant and by Abram putting his face in the dust, he is saying, that's what I want. Not my will, but your will, O oh God. Not, not my way of making this promise happen, but yours, Lord. Jesus gives us the perfect example of this in the garden. And it's what he calls every last one of us to as well. We surrender. Our will, our kingdom, our goals and hopes, our schedules, our social status, our family plans, and we completely, wholeheartedly submit to his will for us. Abram surrenders to the Lord Almighty, but perhaps most of all, I think Abram falls on his face here in an act of desperate prayer. God says, walk before me and be blameless, and Abram knows he hasn't. If this is conditional, 
of God's covenant promise like God says that it is, Abram knows he has no hope. This is an impossible thing. And so like the leper before Jesus, he falls on his face as if to say, God, I am unclean. Make me clean. I'm not blameless. I haven't walked in your ways rightly. Have mercy on me. And just like Jesus with the leper, this is exactly what God wanted to see. How does one become blameless before God? Oh, it starts, starts like this. With our face in the dirt, we admit before God with our whole heart that we are needy. Jesus said that, that this is the prerequisite for his kingdom, to be poor in spirit, to be needy. We put our face in the earth and we cry out in prayer for his help, for his healing, for his forgiveness. Man, if you're a Christian here, it's exactly how every last one of us began our walk with God, right? But here's the thing. If we've been walking with God for a while, some, sometimes our tendency is at some point we stop realizing just how needy we are. And this has been true of me. We stop crying out in prayer. We begin to assume God's blessing and grace on our lives. We think we're doing pretty good in our own strength, and we only need a little bit of help from God to get us through our day. We stop falling on our face, church. Because we mistakenly start to think of ourselves a little bit bigger and our God a little bit smaller. Our lack of prayer is the sign of our own self-sufficiency and our unbelief. But lest we lose heart, there's such incredible encouragement here for us. Before the Lord Almighty, given an impossible standard to meet, Abram falls on his face in worship, in surrender, and in prayer. And then what does it say? And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Do you see what happened there? God said, Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant with you. Abram falls on his face, and God says, Behold, my covenant is with you. See, this is, this is what God was looking for from Abram. This was blameless in his ways, just to fall on his face. To fall on his face is the position of faith that God deems as righteous. And so he says, Behold, my covenant is with you. Oh, what incredible good news that is for us. That that's all that God is looking for. Us to fall on our face before him. Abram's faith has it's grown throughout our story. Remember in chapter 15 when, when Abram kept arguing back to God every time that he made a promise? This time, Abram doesn't say a word. In the waiting and by God's patience, Abram realizes just how needy he is. 
And now see what, it, what God says to Abram in verse 5. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Uh, this is a, a naming ceremony, and it's cool for many reasons. Uh, firstly, it's cool because we no longer have to call Abraham Abram anymore, right? And better yet, uh, Sariah's name change is coming later. Uh, but second, I love these naming ceremonies because God is giving Abraham a new identity. Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of a multitude. See, God writes his very covenant promise into Abraham's very identity. And this is what God does for us in baptism. We are baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God writes his new covenant promise into our identity as believers just as he did with the old covenant here with Abraham. God then declares his covenant promise to Abraham again, but this time he expands the picture for him a bit. Notice the new elements to this covenant. In verse 6, God says, Abraham won't just be the father of many nations, but kings shall come from you. God is establishing a royal bloodline through him. More astounding than that, God says twice in verses 7 and 8 that this will be an everlasting covenant, an eternal covenant. Surely this would have scrambled Abraham's brain a bit, right? Like, how can this be an eternal covenant with my people? And how can they eternally possess the land? I mean, Abraham himself at 99 years old doesn't even possess the land. He's in it, but he doesn't possess it yet. The other nations do. Who knows what level of understanding Abraham has at this point, but at the very least, he's able to see a little bit more just how much bigger this thing is that God is promising Because as we now know, this eternal royal bloodline that God is establishing led to Jesus, our eternal king, whose kingdom shall never end. And this eternal possession of the land, well, before we all go out and buy those plane tickets to Israel, even though the sun do does sound kind of nice, in Revelation we read about God making the new heavens and the new earth and new Jerusalem is at the center. The eternal home for all of Abraham's descendants. See, Abraham doesn't see it all yet, but he sees in part. And what he sees, he's choosing to believe, as impossible as it might sound. This is God's side of the covenant, expanded for Abraham to see. And then God gives Abraham the other part of his side of the covenant. Walk before me and be blameless was Abraham's call to relational faith and to obedience to God according to his covenant. And now God calls Abraham to an outward expression of that faith. 
God says, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now for everyone here that was on the edge of their seat waiting for me to preach on circumcision, here you go. Man, I got to admit, like, this always seemed like a strange thing for God to call his people to. And part of the reason I found it strange is I always thought it was another way of God making his people distinct to the other nations. Um, But that never really made much sense to me because unless they're all walking around naked, I mean, how do you know if they're distinct? And in fact, circumcision was something already practiced by other nations in the land. So why circumcision? God says here in, in verse 11 that it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So God's covenant promise to Abraham is entirely wrapped up in what God is doing through the seed of Abraham. The eternal promises of his covenant will come through this royal family line, and it's for whoever is brought into this family. It's what God wants his people to never forget. All of our hope is caught up in God blessing the nations through Abraham's offspring because it led to Jesus. And so as a sign for his people, God calls his people to mark the very means through which this offspring is going to come. As God says again, so shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. So it's an expression of faith that serves God's people as a reminder of God's eternal covenant to them. In this family line, Jesus is coming. Of course, circumcision itself did nothing to save anyone, just as much as the Lord's Supper does nothing to save any of us. So the the Lord's Supper is one of our expressions of our faith as Christians, that we do, to, we do together to remember God's new covenant with us through the blood and body of Jesus. And the sign of this new covenant for us is the Holy Spirit, whom God gives us as a seal of his promise. As far back as Deuteronomy, God says, it's not circumcision itself that I have any care for. What I really care about is a circumcision of the heart. Circumcise your heart, said God, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart. Now, at this point in his dialogue with God, Abraham appears to be believing that God can do this impossible thing. But Abraham still thinks it's going to come through Ishmael until verse 15. When God promises blessing, not just through Abraham, but through his wife. And God said to Abraham, as for Sariah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sariah, but Sarah shall be her name. Praise God. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. See, yes, God is going to bring about an eternal royal line of blessing through Abraham, but God is going to do it through Abraham's 
90-year-old wife. Just like God promised the Messiah would come through Eve. And how does Abraham respond to this impossible promise of God? Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. You see the parallel, right? Abraham again falls on his face, this time laughing in God's face. This is the first R-O-F-L in the Bible, right? Like, Abraham literally rolls on the floor laughing. In his mind, Abraham says to himself, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? It's ridiculous. And listen, he's, he's not having a laugh while still genuinely believing that God's going to do this thing. Because then he says to God's face, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Like, listen, God, I already put a plan in motion. Just bless the son that I already have. We've prayed for decades that Sarah might bring forth a child, and it hasn't happened. This is too impossible of a thing. This is unbelief. This promise is too unbelievable for Abraham to believe. And so he laughs in the face of the Lord Almighty. The God who simply spoke and the universe came into being. The God who by his word holds the atoms in your body in place and and holds the sun in its place. And yet when God says that that he might bring forth a child through an old woman, then Abraham disbelieves? But see, right here, right here, this is God's wisdom in the waiting. This is why in God's perfect timing, he waited until Abraham was 99 years old. See, if God would have given Sarah a child 15 years ago, they would have said, God's been faithful to his promise and our efforts. But now, after unbelief has been exposed, now God is going to cause them to say, God is almighty and we are not. God is merciful. God is gracious. This is the God of the impossible. They are going to see God and praise God for who he truly is, for God's glory, and for their own joy, and for their children's joy, and their children's, and their children's, and their children's, for generations as they recount this story of God's power. God waited. He waited in order to pull true worship out of their hearts, in order to pull true faith out of their hearts. This is the kind of faith that God calls Abraham to, the type of faith that would mark the line of his covenant blessing to his people. And it's the kind of faith that he calls us to, church. God's call to us as Christians is to trust God to do the impossible. 
It starts with our own salvation. Like you said to Abraham, God says to us, walk before me and be blameless. And we can't do it. And so like Abraham, we fall on our face and we cry out to God, have mercy on me. Heal me. And we believe that God can do it because of Jesus. That through Jesus, he is able and willing to wipe away all of our sin and call us righteous. That he is able and willing to make us born again as a new creation. To call us his very sons and daughters. And that by his spirit, he is able to keep us till the very end. It's an impossible thing, but not for God. But it doesn't end there. See, God then gives us an impossible mission. Jesus commands us, go therefore and make disciples. And some of us need to be reminded this morning that this is an impossible task. We're trying to do things in our own strength. The Bible says those outside of Jesus are spiritually dead. And we cannot wake the dead. It's impossible. None can do it except for the Lord Almighty. Still, some of us this morning need to be reminded just how almighty God is. Listen, God is still adding to Abraham's descendants, just like he promised Abraham here. I love that as science advances and telescopes get more powerful, we just keep discovering more and more stars. They were already there. We just keep finding them. And it's like that with God's elect. God has them counted. But he calls us to search them out and mature them in the faith by his spirit. But it starts, church, with us falling on our faces together. Falling on our faces that God would do the impossible. Like the early church, of whom it said, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Because we can't, and he can. You know, this is certainly Abraham's unbelief that God is unable to do this impossible thing. But it's also probably that Abraham doesn't want God to do this impossible thing. Like, if you think about it, if the blessing wasn't meant to go through Ishmael, what does Abraham then have to admit? That he was in the wrong, right? That by not waiting for God and taking matters into his own hands, Abraham was in the wrong. That he sinned before God and it led to 13 years of discord between his family and for generations to follow. Abraham doesn't just need to believe that God can do the impossible thing. He needs to submit to God's impossible thing. When Abraham said, oh, that Ishmaelite lived before you, 
What did God say in verse 19? God said no. And we need to hear that. Sometimes God, out of his great love for us, says no. We cannot demand God do our impossible things, our dreams and hopes and aspirations. We cannot say, God, you're only faithful if you give me this career or this house that I want. No, he is God. He will be faithful to accomplish his impossible things in us. But hear what, he sa- hear what it says down in verse 20. He says, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I have heard you. God understands, as we do with our kids, that those no's are hard to hear. Listen, his desire isn't to squash our dreams. I've heard you, God says. I've heard your prayer. And then he proceeds to still bless Abraham's prayer for Ishmael, even if the royal line doesn't go through him. You know, before I was a Christian, my dream was to run away to Canada and uh, live a hermit's life. Uh, Because as I often said, I, I just hated people. But God said no. He saved me. He led me to a Christian university where I studied the Bible with a calling towards ministry on my heart. And then as I looked and saw what a terrifying calling being a pastor was, I said, "Uh, no thanks. God, I want to work with my hands. Bless that. But God said no. God called me back into ministry and eventually to serve here in missions. And I said, God, I'll come, but I really don't want to be a pastor. If anything, I'll be an associate pastor of some kind. And so we planned to come here with another family, and and he would be the lead pastor. And God said, no. Like Parig mentioned last week, if, if God would have told me 17 years ago that I'd, I'd, be about, I'd be preparing to plant a church in Ireland, I would have laughed in his face. But this is what God does. And you know what? He still heard my prayers for those other things. Like he gave me a house with a big back garden where I can go escape to. I have all kinds of projects that I can work on with my hands. And he's given me a people to plant this church with. I'm not doing it alone. But more than that, He has actually changed and shaped my heart to want his things. I actually want to be a pastor. Oh, the patience and humor of God. God told a laughing Abraham, name your son Isaac. And you know what Isaac means? He laughs. laughs. Like that's hilarious. God sees our unbelief, and he's not shocked by it. Yeah, Will, you, you want to go move to a foreign country to go be by yourself without people? 
Yeah, well, one day I'm going to call you to move to a foreign country in order to go make a people. Listen, I don't share my story to be some shining example. It's, it's not, and that's not the point at all. I do want to encourage you that, that God might have a particular calling on your life that you could be deeming as impossible, and God might just be calling you this morning to take another step in faith towards him. But the bigger thing that I want all of us to take away from this is that no matter what particular calling we have, as a Christian, and more importantly, as a church together, I can assure you that we have a particular calling on your life that's impossible. And that calling is for us to make disciples of each other and for those that don't know him yet. To see God's kingdom expanded in here and out there. And it's an impossible task that only God can do. And it requires us falling on our faces. And I have to confess, guys, that I still have unbelief in my heart that God can do it. Ireland's a dark place, I say. Ministry is frustratingly slow, I say. God, you can't use the likes of me to do any of this, I say. I've been so convicted lately, so convicted that what I haven't been doing is I haven't been falling on my face for God to do this. As an old saint once said, cold prayers ask for denial. Church, we need to fall on our face for our own holiness and for his saving work in Galway, for our neighbors and for our children, especially now. So Lord willing, in the coming six to nine months, we're going to see a church planted, proclaiming the name of Jesus in Oranmore. God willing, that's our prayer. It's exciting, but it's also going to be challenging for us and for GCBC. We've been meeting together as a community group in Oranmore for uh, quite a while now, praying that God would lead us towards a church, which he has been. And starting April 15th, we're going to begin some once-a-month services while we continue to pray and work towards a full launch. Again, God willing, in the next six to nine months. Can I actually get the Oranmore church planning team to, to stand up just for a minute? And if the Kelly family uh, were here, they would be standing up as well. And so if you think about them and the kids that would follow, it's a fairly sizable group. Yeah, you guys can sit. It's a fairly sizable group. And I want you guys to look around and see that because it means that we're both going to feel this, right? And if we think that we can do this in our own strength both Galway City Baptist Church and Oranmore, we're fooling ourselves. We need church to fall on our faces in worship to God, in surrender to God, and in prayer to God to do this impossible thing. 
And so what I want to do is close this, uh, this sermon with an open time of prayer. Uh, Jason, if you wouldn't mind closing us um, after a while, but please, just as the Lord leads you, can we spend a moment in prayer together? Pray for the Galway City Baptist Church as we get ready for this church plant. Pray for the Orinmore Church as we get ready for this plant. And listen, we don't need some super spiritual prayers here. This is just simply asking our dad for help. Let's just spend some time calling out for help. For both of our churches in a challenging time. Let's pray together.